Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 18th, the Friday, 2023. If it's Friday, I'm keen on it. Must be that was the week. My weekly show with Keith Tier, uh, CEO of Signal Rank, about the state of tech and general, and often the state of venture. The last two couple of shows haven't been exactly cheerful about the future <laughs> of tech. Two weeks ago, we had the bonfire of the unicorns, and last week, dry powder, which suggests that there's no logical reason why venture capitalists should be keeping their powder dry. They may just never invest again in the market. Um, it's been a miserable time as an investor. But this week, Keith comes out firing as an optimist. Venture is good is the title of his uh, editorial, a convincing repost to people who believe, perhaps like Kyle Harrison, whose article is cited in, in this week's newsletter, uh, that uh, the, the market and the venture market is a kind of uh, Bernie Madoff-style scam. Keith, uh, the greater fall theory you suggest is wrong when it comes to analyzing venture capital. Yeah, I think it's a fairly cynical theory. Uh, the the, the, uh, the mid-journey picture on the front of this week's cover is um, Bernie Madoff. It isn't actually Bernie Madoff. It's, um, it's Mid Journey's a, take on Bernie. I Madoff. thought it was. I thought it was familiar. I couldn't figure it out. It's a sort of cross between Bernie Madoff and some high-powered uh, Silicon Valley venture capitalist. Yeah, and the contrast with the title is meant to be slightly ominous. It's, it's venture is good, but if he's saying it, then then there needs to be a question mark. Um, and and. I picked up on this. It was in two different places, and I don't think it's yet a meme. But it, once something's in two places, we can probably predict that by next Keith, week. Once you're talking about it, it's a meme. You are Mr. Meme, aren't you? Isn't that your <laughs> middle name, Keith Meme Tier? And the meme is William, actually. The, the meme is um, that venture capital only works if some foolish investor pays more for the same company that you just invested. So this in. is this is uh, Carl Harrison's point, and it, it, I get the sense from you is you weren't entirely sure where Harrison was. Yeah, I was. I, I mean, I, I read him a lot, and I don't think he's a particularly cynical. So I was a bit surprised if he actually means it literally. Um, but but uh, I do think he's playing around with the idea that maybe there's an element of that. And I think what he's, what he's doing is overreacting to 2021. And in 2021, as always happens in, in a pylon, I think of it as a pylon, P-I-L-E hyphen O-N, not P-Y-L-O-N. In a pylon, um, the supply of money exceeds the demand for it and prices go up. And lots of investors come into the market that were not previously there and suddenly the gross amounts invested dwarf prior years. And that, that happened in 2021. It was at least double any prior year in terms of amount and velocity. Now, you, you, hist you historicize it, Keith, in the editorial. You say that um, it all began, we're not, you're not blaming it on Yuri Milner, but you're 
historicizing uh, the period between 2012 and uh, 2021 uh, in terms of Milner's investments, particularly in Facebook. Why is this significant? Well, because what we saw in 2021 was that was the end result of what is known as growth investing, uh, warping the entire venture market. Gr growth investing is characterized by writing very large checks that uh, value a company more than it really should be valued in order to get in. And, and that does correlate to the greater fool theory. That's why what Kyle is saying isn't, is, is, you know, there's a reason why he thinks it. Because normally those late, those late stage growth investors are relying on an IPO. And the people who are the greater fools are the general public who buy at the IPO. As always. Although, it, had they bought the IPO of Facebook, maybe not Twitter or earlier tech companies, they would have made money. Right. So I think there's a fair, a fair argument that some of the growth stage investors invested based on the greater fool theory. But to characterize venture capital as a whole as that is, a, is the mistake. So what and happened in 2022 to change all this? Because it doesn't seem as if anything's fundamentally changed. There, yeah. there are always these speculative ventures. You invest, VCs invest, then late stage VCs invest. And then the public invests, and mostly they lose, but sometimes they win. Why is it different now? I think it's hard to unpack because there's a lot of variables. But I think you start with uh, interest rate rises to combat inflation in the in, that began during COVID due to supply chain issues in the world. So suddenly prices started to go up. Cars, for example, is a good example. Uh, you're often paying tens of thousands of dollars above the asking price for a car. Or mortgage rates, which have changed the, the real estate industry. Mortgage rates later. and it, But this whole thing set in motion. It's the price of money that you and I have talked about. Yeah, in the, price of, the price of money went up. And so public markets uh, started to lose money to other asset classes. And at that time time the public market reaction was to lower the value of public companies to a much lower multiple of their revenues and earnings and 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 that set in motion a, a kind of a chain of events that ends up in venture capital where valuations have to go lower uh, and and you know there's this kind of being washed up on the tide washed up on the shore as the tide goes out all those companies that raised money in 2021 and early 22 at high valuations, the tide's gone out and they can't get back in the sea because no one's going to pay the price. But, but again, that, that's happened before. It happened after the dot-com boom. It happened in the late two, two, 2000s. So I don't understand why it's so different. You're saying because of the more macroeconomic issues of, of inflation plus interest rates. That, 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 those are the key drivers. And COVID, of course, is a massive catalyst for that. And the Although deep... COVID drove the market up and created enormous speculation. I mean, especially oh, oh, the tech market. Well, actually, uh, it, it drove prices up. Um, yes, you're right. It, uh, and in some cases, it drew, drove up company values. Um, but not, a, not, not entirely, by the way. Some companies lost value during COVID. So, so that, the, the other thing that uh, happened is deglobalization. As deglobalization happens in, in the China-America conflict. Being yeah, we got a, you got a piece. We'll talk about Biden and Chinese 
the investment later. Right. In the so that that also creates you know inefficiencies in the market. So it's all correlated. The idea that this is all to do with venture being a, a Bernie Madoff-like asset class is too superficial. It's not really. Yeah, one of the things that occurs to me is how unusual this period was in the last 20 years, say between 2002 and 2021. There was an interesting piece. Uh, I, I don't know if you saw it in the Wall Street Journal this week, a couple of days ago on mortgage rates. Uh, and they had a chart of the mortgage rates over the last 50 years. And what's really astonishing is we think that 7% is high now, but it actually isn't that high. It's only high compared to the last 20 years. And if you go back to the 80s, the mortgage rate was at 18%. I remember so that, yeah. Could it be argued, Keith, that we're returning to normal now? I don't think there's such a thing as normal. I think that's a historical. I, th I think there's a set of unique variables in every moment that lead to outcomes. And, and any attempt to read history backwards and, you know, like there's a lot of people in venture that say, oh, it's like 2016. Well, that Where might be 2016. Well, roughly the number of funding rounds, the amount being deployed was equal to 2023. And that's roughly true in terms of just pure numbers. But there's nothing in common between 2016 and 2023 when it comes to the likely future. You know, uh, uh, so the, the likely future is... All I, mean, of the I, I take your point, but looking back, and this is not a show on real estate, but who was buying houses in the late 70s, early 80s when the mortgage rate was 18%? Somebody must have been. Uh, you know, I bought one in London, and I can tell you that uh, you got you 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 had zero down, interest only mortgages. That meant that it was affordable, so the market adapted okay. so that the consumer could still play. Um, and then when I sold my house, which I did when I moved to the states in 1994, uh, sorry, 96. Uh, I only got as much for the house as I paid for it. So it's glorified rentals. Uh, one of the companies that comes up in the Harrison piece, which we've talked about before, is Hopin. You mention it in your your piece. Um, what does Hopin tell us? Why does it still make you confident, ultimately, about venture? Uh, as I said, the, the title of... Um, the piece is Venture is Good, not morally good, but economically good, uh, you, you conclude your editorial suggesting that um, uh, long live, uh, long live uh, venture capital and you still believe that it's a viable sector. What is hoping? Why is it both a warning and uh, a suggestion that things can still work out? Yeah. So, so I don't know if it's hoping or hopping. I call it hopping, but you. I think it's hopping. Yeah. Hoping, but, hopping. Um, <clears throat> so. Obviously, Hopin is a poster child for failure because it just sold its assets for $15 million, having previously been valued at $7.5 And Kyle's piece is triggered by that, as was one of my editorials last uh, week. Uh, that's a barbecued bomb, a unicorn, isn't it, Keith? It's a barbecued unicorn. So, so it's a poster child for failure, but it's also a poster child for success because uh, within a, two years... Hopin raised a lot of money, 
produced a lot of virtual events, made a lot of revenue, uh, and then failed to transition from the post from the COVID to the post COVID area to create a sustainable business. But the fact that investors were prepared to risk close to a billion dollars on its success tells you that the appetite for risk and reward is there. And you it won't last forever. If if generation after generation loses their money, in the end they they'll go somewhere else. They'll buy. I did a show earlier this week on the value of art. They'll put. Wealthy people will put their money into art or real estate or government bonds or non-tech uh, stocks. I think I think all of the above is true and has always been true. So if you just focus in on venture um, and you look at the amount of money invested in venture, gross money, and the gross output from that money, venture is a massive value creator. A failure like Hopin is dramatic and newsworthy, but actually is a sideshow compared to the asset class as a whole. Now, it gets really tricky when you get down to single funds. Instead of looking at venture as a whole, you look at, let's say, I don't know, benchmark capital. Um, benchmark capital can win or lose in any given fund, and so can Sequoia. But the asset class as a whole is very valid. Now, a pension fund like Calpus, for example, invests in lots of funds and has diversified risk across the entire asset class. So it's pretty hard for it to lose money. Um, some people might say, Keith, you're the CEO of a startup, Signal Rank, which is an interesting AI play on investment. That You have to say this by definition. I mean, you, you have to be a believer because you're in the space. Well, there's facts, isn't there? I mean, we, we uh, I don't agree with the idea of alternative facts that uh, Trump's uh, assistant, I've forgotten her name now, the blonde-haired woman from back in the day who's married to a Democrat. Um, you, do you know? Yeah, I know you mean oh, about alternative facts. But... Alternative facts. I don't believe in alternative facts. I mean, you can, you can measure how much money was invested in venture funds and you can measure the mergers and acquisitions and IPO value of those companies uh, starting with Microsoft and Apple, by the way, and the, the the value produced is vastly outweighs the value invested. So, as an asset class, the facts are just facts. And uh, um, now, it's hard to invest in an asset class. That's one of the problems with venture capital. Hence, Signal Rank. If you could invest in venture capital as an index, like across the entire asset class, you'd do very well. But you can't. There's no instrument that you can buy that does that. So CalPERS have to go and negotiate fund by fund by fund to get into each one, one at a time. What SignalRank is building is an index approach to venture capital based on Series B rounds where a lot of the risk has already uh, gone out of the system. Um, and, and I do think an index of venture capital would be a super attractive asset class in, in you know to any investor. And that you know, wealth managers at places like UBS, if they could have a, a product that was a, a private market product, which is what venture capital is, that uh, returned, you know, what venture capital returns, they'd be super happy as their clients would be. But it doesn't exist. And yeah, so well, it, but it all comes back, and we'll get to this with the tweet of the week. It all comes down to the emotional aspect, the unreasonable aspect of investment, which 
is both the problem and the charm, the up and the downside of investment. We're going to take a short break. Everyone needs to pay for their breakfasts, Keith. No free lunch. Uh, my new sponsor on the show is Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. And I think our kind of viewers and listeners who are interested in venture capital and the future need to have a better understanding of history too. I'm going to run a short ad for them. Uh, and then we'll be back and we'll talk about AI of the week, essays of the week, and the rest of the show. So stay tuned, everybody. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. It's full of excellent essays. Uh, and in fact, all guests on Keenom will get an annual subscription for free. Keith, the essays of your week uh, are pretty interesting. One in particular uh, was the, the Harrison piece. Uh, generally, though, things are still a bit miserable. Uh, when it comes to uh, the news of the week. Any any reason to be a bit more cheerful? Well, look, I, I think we're in a period of emotional turmoil in, in, in venture capital, and that's my world that I live in day to day. And well, that's your euphemism. What's my euphemism? Which... Uh, emotional turmoil. Yeah, I think it's a euphemism for people running away from the ball. You know, a bit like Spurs when they play soccer. Uh, oh, thank you. What about Manchester United? <laughs> Speaking oh, of running away from the balls, you've got your own problems at Manchester United. Exactly. Well, running towards about... the balls, I think. That's another question, though, another <laughs> show. Uh, yeah, but, but there isn't I... a lot to be cheerful about. What about on the AI front? Even your essays of the week when it comes to AI, we've got Gary Marcus suggesting that what if generative AI turns out to be a dud? He's very influential. I know you did a debate with him on the future of AI. John Thornhill at the FT, very respected tech commentator, also did a piece on that. I think it's the, the top rated, the most viewed piece now on FT. Is, is everything getting sucked into all this pessimism, Keith? You know, I, 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 there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of a cousin piece by uh, Ian Bremmer um, that, Contract yeah, which is it's less miserable in its own way. Yeah. Now, if you look at what's going on, Gary Marcus represents almost a one-man campaign against large language models. Uh, he's a zealot. He's clever, so he can put an argument together. Yeah, and he's an um, AI expert. I mean, to be fair, he's not some journalist. No, no. He, he knows his stuff. He's absolutely an AI expert, but he's a, an expert from a different field of AI that doesn't like large language models, I believe. that. And if people. you wanted to be kind, unkind to Gary, you might say that he's a little myth that he wasn't the one who invented generative AI. That might be true, but I don't think he would ever have gone down a large language model path. He doesn't believe in it. By the way, he's completely right, probably, I'll, I'll add the word probably, that ge artificial general intelligence will not come out of what OpenAI is doing. Uh, it's going to need a different path. I, I agree with him on that. But I don't agree with him that it's either a dud or scary. Um, I've, I've used OpenAI this week for coding. 
Yeah. And I, I could not have written the code I wrote. It's the stuff I showed you before. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't see how he could call it a complete dud. But you talked about the uh, the Ian Bremmer, Mustafa Suleiman piece in Foreign Affairs, the AI power paradox as a cousin of the Marcus piece. I'm not sure it was. I mean, I don't think that Bremmer thinks of AI as a dud. He just thinks it's going to result in profound political change. Well, I think he's, I would characterize it, him, if, if you think of the spectrum, Gary Marcus, stop it now, and me, leave it alone and let it blossom. Bremer's in the middle and says, we need to regulate it, but we need to regulate it in a clever way that involves all of the developers who are building it, as well as all the nations, it, that it must be a global uh, regulation, not um, uh, state by state, because that won't work. Yeah, and I would have thought you would have liked the Bremer piece because I do, you've always I do. been someone who's argued that 21st century represents the end of the nation state. I mean, what Bremer's saying is that tech companies like Microsoft and Google now are great powers and that they have to be acknowledged and that there needs to be a seat at the table for these companies yeah. when it comes to discussing AI. No, I completely agree with him. Funnily enough, he doesn't reference ICANN. And ICANN is the one global institution that is structured in the way that he describes where stakeholders, including nations, are all sitting at the same table, including the tech companies, the people who sell domain names, uh, the people who run the infrastructure. They're all sitting at the same table. And ICANN... It, Whatever you think of ICANN, it is successful at running the domain name system, which is its remit, and the IP addressing system, which we all sit on top of as we do Restream here. So, um, yeah, no, I do agree with Bremer that that's the right approach, as a multi-stakeholder global conversation with some self-reflective uh, rules that create uh, parameters. I, I, agree, I do agree with him. That said, it, it may be premature even to do that because AI is at such an early stage and there's so much change happening. I don't even think we know what it is yet. Yeah. Well, we may not know what it is, but we know what it is. And I think the, the, uh, the, the Bremer piece is interesting to read alongside um, the Marcus piece. I'm not sure they're related. They're obviously about the same subject. I was pleased, Keith, and this was not at my bidding, that you included my conversation with Dave Weiner uh, on Keenan on his origins. Uh, Dave remains a, a legendary figure in the field. What, 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 what would he, what would that conversation teach us about today's moment in 2023, do you think? Well, look, I think Dave Weiner is a super interesting guy. Um, I've known him since the end of Real Names. He helped me create a blog on his radio userland platform in 2002. Um, so I've known him a long time. I helped him sell his company weblogs.com to VeriSign in, I think, around 2005-ish. Um, so he, uh, I, I wouldn't say he and I are friends, but we, I think we like each other and we respect each other. We don't know each other well enough to be friends. Um, uh, I thought your interview with him was really good and timely. Dave basically has been the, the, the cheerleader of distributed publishing uh, and subscribing from the very, very beginning. 
Um, he invented some things, he championed other things, but he's been a key driver of everything and still is. He's writing code today, he's releasing products. Pretty much every month he releases a new product. So um, it, it's a wide-ranging look at publishing and subscribing to content over about a 30-year period. Yeah, so and in, in some ways, the conversation suggests that not much has changed. He reminded me of his uh, engagement with Bill Gates in the mid-90s, which triggered a lot of his work, uh, his hostility to top-down media. Of course, we still have the same issue in many ways, uh, uh, Elon Musk is, is, is the first cousin, maybe even the brother, younger brother of, of Bill Gates. What about, Keith, uh, more concrete things? Some interesting, uh, interesting news that DeepMind, Google's DeepMind, is testing a personal life coach AI tool. I think it would have been news if they weren't. Isn't everybody testing one of these devices? Isn't, well, what's the problem with that? I think it's noteworthy just because Google has hesitated to do that for such a long time based on the fear that this coach might not be a good coach. Um, and that, in that sense, by the way, Gary Marcus's concerns are correct. Uh, most of the large language models are not reliable uh, coaches yet, except in very specific areas like coding. Uh, um, or, it wouldn't be any worse than human coaches. They're usually wrong too, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Human coaches can be very damaging, just like therapists, if, they're, if they reinforce negatives, um, which can happen. I mean, it still seems the, 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 the logical next step when it comes to AI in terms of a real product is a personal assistant, a really easy-to-use personal assistant. To me, that's the Netscape moment, when we yeah. can all use it, not just you and Dave Weiner, but real people who don't understand tech. I agree with that. It's, do you remember Clippy? Yeah, but it didn't work, did it? It didn't work. But the idea of a personal assistant that can help you is goes back. I mean, if I can way. get a, an algorithm that puts all my shows together, I I go about it in exactly the same way in terms of posting and performing and all the rest of it. It shouldn't be that hard, but I don't know how to start. Yeah, I I have tried uh, to use OpenAI to produce that was the week newsletter, uh, and I can give it all of the links. Uh, and uh, and ask it to organize them into sections and do short summaries. It can kind of do it one by one, but it actually takes longer than me doing it myself. So it isn't there yet. But the, my, the dream would be, you know, I read stuff. I favorite things I read. It picks up the things I favorite, produces that was the week with the right subheadings and putting things in the right place. And all I've got to do is write the editorial. That would save me about two hours' work. Every yeah, week. and for me, the AI would recognize emails that confirm interviews and do all the rest of the heavy lifting, which I have to waste my time. I mean, I guess I could get a personal system, but by the time I explain everything to them, I might as well do it myself. Yeah. Calendly has a negative side to it, but actually one of the good things about it is it can do that. You just get people to pick a slot that you've predefined and uh, it goes in your calendar without you doing anything. Well, it's going to happen. I think that's one thing we can say for sure, whether it's in the next five or 10 years is the question. Uh, one interesting piece of news, more down to earth, is that um, uh, 
the VC firm Blackbird is selling its stake in Canva at $25.5 billion. Canva, in a way, is maybe a, a sneak preview of, of an AI world, is it, Keith? Well, it's integrated AI, uh, and it is doing more and more to be able to automate designs for things like slideshows. So it's a threat um, to the Adobe's of the world. Well, Adobe is doing it as well, but in different ways. Like uh, you can put a photo in Adobe that's maybe square and it can fill it out to be landscape by artificially creating additional uh, organic extensions to the, to the photo. And you can put, like you could put a house in a field in Adobe uh, and tell it what kind of a house. So Adobe is starting to do things. So, but this Canva news, is it, it reminds us that there is some normal out there and that not everything is dark and dire. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Most things are good, by the way. The only bad thing is the emotional reaction to the market change in 2021. Everything else is good. And the funny thing about us human beings... But that's beings, like saying after, you know, the, um, the Abraham Lincoln assassination, uh, and how was the show, Mrs. Lincoln? No, it's a bit broader than that. It's um, how, how is the future of America, Mrs. Lincoln? And it, the answer would be good. Yeah, after her husband just got assassinated, I'm not sure what she would yeah, say. Yeah, well, I, in a way, that's my point. As humans, emotions dominate our short-term brain. But that's who we are, Keith. And we're never going to change that. Even your, your algorithms isn't going to change that. You yeah, have but, to have a, an emotion to, to make the decision to use it. But the whole traditions of critical thinking, philosophy economics allows us to abstract and to think historically about the moment we're in and where things are going and that is uh, you know above emotion that, that that now of course you have opinions that shape outcomes because human beings history doesn't just happen choices are made by humans so emotion is super important we, we to, to to misquote someone we make our own history just not in quite in the way we we think we are. What about when it comes to um, Africa you, um, and China? Uh, you had an interesting piece on Biden's uh, restricting U.S. investments in, in, in China's military might. Is this a big deal? Are we what? slipping and sliding into a, a digital Cold War? Look, I think if you look at Biden's conference that is having with uh, Asian leaders in the next period, and you look back at, uh, even going back to the Trump regime, the one uh, constant that both Trump and Biden shared is uh, a trade war and a, and, and a kind of a cold war with China, which is, you know, on the one hand, you could argue is um, rational because it's slowing down your likely competitor. On the other hand, it's entirely irrational because it's shrinking the world economy and making life harder for most human beings. Yeah, it's so, reason and unreason, which we need to disentangle. It's, it's, it's certainly significant. We've talked about it before, and it probably that news needs to be read in the context also of, uh, of Bremer's piece on yeah. uh, nation states and AI power, because that's the reality on the ground. Well, so just, one, Sorry, just one thing, Andrew, just to, just to uh, retrieve one thing. There's really no good outcome for us humans if nation states fight. 
I mean, there just isn't. It's technology. But unless the nation state wins, like the United States or even China, you're part of that nation state. That, I, even that isn't good. Would you argue that it was good for the UK to fight World War II, even though they won? I mean, look at look at the bad. Well, that, but that, that's a, it's a red herring. I'm not going to go that way because <laughs> we could have another show on that. Um, when it comes to Biden, though, and Trump, it's interesting. I don't want to talk about Trump, but in many ways, Biden continues in that Trumpian uh, critique of, of China and globalization. So in, in some ways, we get obsessed with Trump for various reasons, but in, perhaps he's a bit more normal than we think. Finally, uh, when it comes to Startup of the Week, you've always been very bullish and particularly interested in Africa. And your Startup of the Week is MasterCard's decision to purchase a minority state in uh, MTN's 5.2 billion tech business, which is an Africa-related story. Tell us about this one, Keith. So M MTN is, um, is a digital platform in Africa uh, mobile phones and the like, and also uh, media services. And it has built a peer-to-peer -peer payment system, not unlike PayPal was originally. And it's now huge in Africa. Uh, there's another big one in Kenya. Uh, uh, so Africa is quite far ahead when it comes to digital payments because it, it didn't have the old infrastructure. So it built the new one first. And uh, MasterCard is now recognizing Africa as a first-class citizen for its investments, which I think is huge. MTN's all over Africa. When I go to South Africa with my family, MTN's everywhere. When you go to Nigeria and Ghana, it's there. When you go to Kenya, it's there. Um, and there's other big companies like Safaricom, which is an Afri a huge African uh, cellular and payments company. So um, I think it, I put it as startup of the week just because I don't think people realize how advanced Africa is becoming in infrastructure. Yeah, and is this mobile infrastructure? Yes. So, and so that allows them, as some optimists believe, to, to, to vault over any kind of wired infrastructure. Correct. Yeah. Satellite and mobile are the two big techs that, there's no cable networks. It's satellite. Yeah. So that won't be the, the last we hear of that. Finally, tweet of the week. And it's not tweet anymore. It's X of the week, appropriately. And in this sense, usually the X of the week is not connected with the rest of the show. But this is central. It's, a, it's an X from um, visual capitalist on the roller coaster of emotional invested, borrowed from Fidelity. What does that tell us, Keith? And it, comes the, back to this issue of reason and emotion when it comes to investing. Yeah, the, well, the graph in the middle there is, is very telling. The, the graph basically says how much money you would make if you were in the market permanently during the ups and downs, and that's the left-hand high chart. Right, so this is, for people just listening, this is, we have two graphs, one that looks like a roller coaster that makes you feel a bit queasy, and the other, which is a much more conventional slow rise uh and that's the one you like isn't it yeah so the left hand bar there is you didn't use your emotions at all you just stayed in the market that's how much money you would make uh the the next one the next lower one is what if you missed the 10 best days in the market 
just 10 days, if you're out in the market for 10 days, and then each, each subsequent decline in money made is staying out of the market longer. So I don't know about you, when I, when I invest in stocks and shares, I, when shares go down, I want to sell them. And when they go up, I want to buy them. And that's the exact opposite of what you should do. Uh, so emotions kill value growth. That's basically the point. And can we get rid of emotions? I mean, I, I guess Fidelity are in the business of trying to do that. All these investment wealth management companies try and convince us to overcome our emotions. That's what you're, in a way, trying to do uh, for investment at Signal Rank. Do you think yep. we can ever overcome emotions when it comes to investment? Only by outsourcing decisions to unemotional agents, maybe uh, co-pilots. And can we build algorithms that don't include emotion? Well, ideally, yes. Algorithms should be just math. Um, and, and but doesn't math contain emotion? Usually not. Uh, it not, doesn't not, depend on which math you take and how you present it. Well, that, that, there's a deeper conversation there. What you're talking about is heuristics, which is math that seeks an outcome using a predetermined formula. That's a heuristic. And yes, that has emotion in it. So my, my heuristic at signal rank says uh, good investors stay good for a long time. And if you score them and understand who they are and track what they do, you will end up in good places. But that's not the same as machine learning and AI. Machine learning and AI just say, here's the data. Tell me you know, what, what you can derive from it, where the goal, you give it a goal. The goal is to, is to you know, make more money with my dollar than any other way. Read the data and tell me how to do it. And that algorithm uh, should not be emotional. It should be just logical. Well, speaking of goals, Keith, tomorrow is Manchester United versus Spurs or Spurs United at Spurs, uh, the 5.30 p.m. Uh, kickoff in London, 9.30 in, on the Pacific Coast. What, what does the algorithm, what does a dispassionate analysis tell us? Well, who's going to win tomorrow? I would say Spurs letting two goals against Brentford and United didn't let any in against Wolves. But Spurs scored two against Brentford, and United only scored one against Wolves and struggled to do that. So I think everything about it says a nil-nil draw.